Last time we spoke about the actions in New Guinea and the Japanese counteroffensive in Arakan. The good old boys down under were getting ready to launch a major offensive aimed to seize Ley in Salamaua. The Australian and American forces gradually built up enough strength to commence the offensive and High Command decided to launch some feints, such as at Mubo, to distract the Japanese from their real intentions. Over in Arakan, Irwin's disaster was still paying dividends to the Japanese as General Koka launched a massive counterattack. Things were continuing to get worse for the British in Burma, though General Slim was beginning to make some improvements. Lastly, the British began a propaganda campaign to boost morale in the Far East using the Mad Onion Man Wingate's recent adventure with the Chindits. Things were certainly looking rough in the CBI theater. This episode is Operation Postern, The Drive to Salamaua. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more, so go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've just now released a almost two-hour-long documentary on China's warlord era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. Over there, you can find exclusive podcasts, like my episodes comparing the fentanyl crisis in North America with the Opium Wars, my piece on General Kanji Ishiwara, and my recent interview with Chuck Myers. Check it out, it mean a lot to me. Now, oh, uh, before we begin, this episode will feel a bit like one of those old TV episodes that rehashes what happened during the last season. You've heard me say it a few times at this point, but uh, because we do this series in a week-by-week format, sometimes we get into these messy weeks where either not too much occurs or too much occurs. Regardless, this episode is about multiple ongoing operations that culminate into the drive upon Salamaua, and for the sake of coherency, I'm going to have to summarize a lot of what occurred in the Southwest Pacific area for early 1943. General Blamey devised a plan to capture Lei, codenamed Operation Postern. General MacArthur approved of the plan, which was quite complex and reflected the growing power of the Allied forces in the Southwest Pacific. Blamey moved to New Guinea to take overall charge of the operation, reverting Herring to commander of the First Corps, responsible for tactical operations. The key to a quick success lay in convincing General Adachi that Salamal was the primary target for a major offensive. To accomplish this, it was necessary for the Australian and American forces to press upon the Japanese around the Salamaua area, but not directly upon Salamaua. Operation Postern was preceded by three simultaneous operations occurring in the Southwest Pacific area and the South Pacific area. Together, these three operations helped set up the conditions necessary to allow for an amphibious landing at Ley, by tying up the Japanese ground, naval, and air power in the region alongside creating important feints. 
The invasion of New Georgia was the first of these operations carried out by Admiral Bull Halsey and the 1st Raider Battalion. That offensive, codenamed Operation Toenails, took up a lot of the Japanese ground, sea, and air forces, and would gradually see the Allies capturing Munda. The second operation was called Chronicle, the seizure of Kirowina and the Woodlark Islands, located just northeast of Milne Bay. With their seizure, the Allies were able to create a new forward airfield from which to launch airstrikes against Rabaul, and provide air cover for multiple other operations in the region. Lastly, the third operation was to be an assault on Nassau Bay, which we will talk about a bit later, but now we're going back to the ground forces. The 8th Area Army at Rabaul sent General Adachi and the 18th Army to secure important areas west of Ley and Salamaua, and to do so an offensive was launched against Wau. This prompted the Australian High Command to send Brigadier Moton and the 17th Brigade over to defend Wau in January of 1943. The battle to defend was tough, but the Allies were able to prolong the Japanese advance long enough to transport enough troops to save Wau. The Japanese were sent retreating over to the Mubo area, but instead of pursuing the enemy, Moton limited his men's actions to just patrols. The New Guinea force wished to pursue the Japanese, but was prevented by logistical difficulties. As the Australians gathered more strength, the Japanese prepared a second attempt to capture Wau. This time, the Japanese planned to approach Wau from the north, building a road from Markham Point into the Snake River Valley. From there, the Japanese advance would hit Wau. The 51st Division was earmarked for the task, but the Battle of the Bismarck Sea had caused a devastating loss to the convoy, bringing them over in March of 1943. The Battle of the Bismarck Sea had pressed upon the Japanese High Command the increasing Allied air power, leading them to reformulate their plans. The Japanese began to construct a road to compensate for their inability to transport men and materials to New Guinea via the sea. As the Japanese did this, on the other side, the Allies now felt very secure at Wau and were willing to perform some offensives. General Savage's 3rd Division was given command of the Wau Bololo area. For this task, he had the 17th Brigade, the 2 and 3rd, 25th, and 2 and 7th Independent Companies. It was believed that the Japanese had around 5,500 men around Lei and Salamawa, with around 2 to 8,000 at Medang and 9 to 11,000 at Wewak. Savage was ordered not to attack Salamawa directly, so he decided to establish a firm base as far forward as possible to harass the Japanese. Basically, you can see this as a forward offensive patrol action. Now the Japanese had dug in some defensive positions in places called the Pimple, Green Hill, and Observation Hill, which were along the main track from Wau to Mubo. On April the 24th, the 2 and 7th Independent Company were given a new mission to clear the Japanese from the vicinity of Mubo. Moan approved a plan for the seizure of the Pimple and Green Hill, ordering Major Wharf and his 2 and 3rd Company to harass the Japanese logistical routes in Mubo as a distraction as the 2 and 7th hit the Pimple. The Japanese had made the Pimple a nightmare for the Allied forces. They had taken defensive positions on commanding ground, allowing for concealed ambushes. They cleared firing lanes to enable their machine guns to gun down anyone who took a forward approach. By holding the high grounds, they also thwarted the Allies from utilizing grenades effectively. On the morning of April the 24th, after 20 minutes of air attacks by Boston aircraft against Green Hill, Stony Creek, Observation Hill, and Kitchen Creek, the offensive kicked off with a two-pronged attack. The 2 and 7th would start from Vickers Ridge Track, moving in two columns, one going along the Jap Track towards the Pimple, and the other would move north along the Laws Track, a very difficult and quite unknown trail to try and encircle the Pimple from the west. 
When the two columns got within 100 yards of the pimple, they were met with some light machine gun fire and Japanese snipers. The Australians attempted an all-out assault in the late afternoon, but they were unable to gain any ground. The next morning, three Bostons came roaring in to strafe and bomb Green Hill while Allied artillery began to bombard the pimple. Despite the increased firepower, the Australians still were unable to dislodge the enemy with their preceding assaults. It turns out the Australians had greatly underestimated the defensive capabilities of the pimple position. Reconnaissance had failed to pinpoint the enemy positions prior to the offensive. A major lack of communication between the two columns because they had no telephone lines or wireless communications led to a lack of coordination. Neither of the Allied columns knew the plight of the other. Runners were being used, but they were far too slow and extremely vulnerable to Japanese snipers. The offensive was quickly falling apart as the Japanese continued to reinforce their lines. Meanwhile, Wharf's men conducted a number of raids and ambushes in the Masim area, Komiatim Hill and Bobtabi Ridge. Wharf then sent a patrol from Nanling along the bench track to ambush the Japanese at a junction between the Francisco River and the Burali Creek. The ambush was a large success, leading to the deaths of 18 Japanese. Worf tried to perform an identical operation on April 28th, but this time his men were ambushed by the Japanese at Goodview Junctions, suffering considerable casualties. As a result of the forward patrolling of Worf's men, the Allies had learned the Bobtubi Ridge area was defended quite lightly. Having learned this, Worf decided to order a second platoon to capture the northern part of the ridge on April 27th. By the end of the month, Worf had two platoons spread over the Bobtubi Ridge area, with a third platoon held in reserve at Masim. Over in his headquarters, Moten now realized the offensive against the pimple was far too costly, and he decided the men should simply bypass it. However, the commander in the field, General Savage, continued to launch attacks. The reason why Savage pressed on was because on April the 28th, one of his reconnaissance patrols found a position on the pimple, unoccupied, and he quickly seized it before the Japanese could return to man it. Colonel Gunn on the ground there decided the Japanese must have been expecting an airstrike and momentarily left their positions. He therefore elected to order another company led by Captain Leslie Taterson brought forward to assault the pimple. This time, however, the Allies used deception. Instead of launching an airstrike and artillery against the pimple, they passed over it and bombarded Green Hill. The deception did not work as planned as Savage's men yet again were unable to make any ground against the pimple. By early May, the 2 and 7th Battalion had lost 12 men dead with 25 wounded against the pimple with no end in sight. Meanwhile, May the 3rd, an offensive was launched against the northern part of the Bobtubi Ridge. The Australians were able to fight their way close to the mouth of the Francisco River, prompting the Japanese to pull up reinforcements in the form of 70 SNLF Marines from Salamaua. A battle was fought in a place called the South Coconuts on May the 5th. The Australians performed encircling maneuvers, managing to surround large pockets of the Japanese, who they smashed with artillery. The Australians were met with three major counterattacks, but they held their ground successfully, occupying another place called the Center Coconuts by May the 7th. However, the Japanese then performed another counterattack, utilizing motors to great effect, pushing the Australians back. The Japanese further reinforced the area with 60 additional men coming up from Salamaua, but they were ambushed by the Australians at the North Coconuts location, suffering 20 casualties. On May the 9th, Captain Tatterson's men were struck a lethal blow when they ran into a Japanese booby trap along the Jap track. The Japanese opened fire upon the Australians on the track and began to encircle them. 
Colonel Gunn led a small force along the track to break the encirclement while Tattison's men resisted tenaciously against the Japanese. Tennyson's force had been completely surrounded by the afternoon of May the 9th, and they were in a state of desperation. The Australians utilized booby traps, fire control, and mass grenade attacks to force the Japanese to give them some breathing room. The next day, the Japanese launched a fierce attack against Tennyson's rear. The Australians could hear Japanese officers screaming orders as their riflemen poured lead upon them. As the Japanese pressed upon them, they were receiving 500 additional reinforcements from the 102nd and the 115th regiments. Meanwhile, the 3rd Battalion of the 102nd Regiment in the South Bay received orders to Capture the high area on the right bank of the Buyawim River Fork. This was to be done in coordination with the May 9th attacks. This action would have endangered the Allied positions at the Lababia camp, but luckily the Japanese commander decided instead to hold a defensive position at the bank of the Bitoy Mouth. This allowed Colonel Gunn to concentrate some of his forces at the Lababia camp. By May the 11th, a company of 60 men managed to break the Japanese encirclement of Tatterson's men. According to Tatterson, by 7am on the 11th, the Japanese had continued to fire heavily upon his force, but made no further attempts to advance. It seemed to him the Japanese were actually withdrawing and the increased rifle fire and motors was a cover. Tatterson's men had been battered. He himself was wounded. His force received 12 casualties and estimated that they had inflicted 100 casualties upon the enemy, with possibly 50 deaths. Having saved Tatterson, Gunn then reorganized his forward units and began to dig in along the Jap track in the Lababia camp. From May the 15th onwards, the 17th Brigade focused on aggressive patrolling in all sectors. Aggressive patrols each day harassed the Japanese around the Pimple and Observation Hill. The Australians set up booby traps, practically paralyzing the Japanese troop movements outside their trenches. General Okabe received some much-needed reinforcements over the course of the week, and he began to launch some limited attacks against the south, central, and north coconut areas. Okabe's forces were repelled on the 12th and the 13th, but things would greatly change on the 14th. The 14th saw a heavy shelling of the Babdivi Ridge area before Akabe launched a full-scale attack and overwhelmed the Australian defenders, forcing them to make a fighting withdrawal from the north and central area, forcing them down further into the south coconut area. General Nakano was displeased with his troops, and he issued an address of instruction on May the 17th, and it is as follows. In the attack at Bob Dibi, although a certain group was advancing on a height on the enemy's flank, Instead of really carrying out the attack in such a way as to prepare the way for an assault by our main force, they went no further than a vain firing at the enemy with their weapons. The spiritual and physical strength which was worn down in the WoW campaign is at the present time still lower, but I believe it can easily be restored if the officers will take the initiative, set an example and command as leaders of their men. Despite Nakano's criticism, his men would take a lot of ground forcing the Australians further south, dangerously close to Worf's headquarters. Worf realized maintaining the position would lead to heavy casualties, so he pulled his force out and he took up a position at Namling. It was quite fortunate as well, as the day after he made this decision, 20 Japanese dive bombers strafed and bombed the village of Babdubi. This was part of a Japanese heavy air raid that began on May the 15th, culminating in over a hundred Japanese aircraft hitting multiple Australian positions over the course of just a few days. Three heavy air raids were performed, but these air attacks focused generally far into the Australian rear, leaving the forward positions rather untouched. 
On May the 17th and 18th, large formations of Japanese aircraft performed a raid against Wiles Airfield. Although the Australians ultimately were forced to withdraw from many forward positions, such as Wharf's units, they managed the ultimate objective of Operation Postern, to take the Japanese resources away from Mubo and Lei. They had inflicted numerous casualties upon the Japanese, including against Major General Okabe, who had stepped on a booby trap that put a bullet through his right foot. Ouch. Okabe had to be evacuated on the night of May the 16th as a result, flown back over to Rabaul. Command was thus handed over to Major General Muruachuichi of the 51st Division. The battle for Dabdabi was nowhere near done. General Nakano sent 170 soldiers of the 115th Regiment on May the 17th to attack Hot via the Malolo Track. Nakano estimated the Australians had around 50 men defending Hot. The Japanese force ran into 25 Australians at Kissimbab along the way, and the defenders inflicted 50 casualties upon the Japanese before withdrawing towards Ohibe. One Australian commander at Kissimbab had this to say about the engagement. During this running fight, all men were under very heavy fire. But once again it was brought out what rotten shots the Japanese were. Not one of our boys were hit, and believe me, things were hot. The Australians would return to the hot area on the 22nd to find it completely deserted, so they simply reoccupied their lost positions. And now that is it for the New Guinea campaign, but other significant events unfolded for the Pacific War during this time period. On April the 21st, with a heavy heart, President Roosevelt announced to the American people that the Japanese had executed several airmen from the famous Doolittle raid. To just refresh your memories, eight of the Doolittle pilots had been captured in Jiangsu province and they were put on a military trial within China and sentenced to death because, quote, because of their act against humanity. They were then transported to Tokyo, where the army ministry reviewed their case. Hideki Tojo initially opposed their death sentences for fearing the Americans would retaliate against Japanese living in America, and he actually would be right about that one. Sugiyama and the rest of the army general staff, however, insisted on executing all eight of the pilots who had contributed to the deaths of around 50 civilians and to thwart possible future raids against the Japanese home islands. The executions would be authorized by an ex post facto military regulation specifically drafted by the army ministry. What is interesting to note is Emperor Hirohito chose to intervene and commuted the punishment of five out of the eight pilots. Why he allowed the other three to die in violation of international law is unknown as the Japanese destroyed nearly all documentation pertaining to the prisoners of war by the end of the war. Some historians theorize Hirohito wished to demonstrate his benevolence. Yet again, this is one of those moments that showcases Hirohito was a very active participant, despite the claims made for decades after the war that he was merely a powerless hostage. The three men were executed via firing squad at a cemetery outside of Shanghai in China on October the 14th of 1942. It was not until April of 1943 that the Doolittle Raid operation was fully disclosed to the American public. The U.S. War Department said the chief reason for not explaining the full details of the Doolittle Raid sooner was the need to bring the Doolittle pilots safely home and to prevent reprisals against their Japanese allies who had aided the pilots. In April of 1943, the five surviving pilots were moved to Nanjing, and in December of 1943, pilot Robert Mater died of beriberi. He had been starving for months and refused medical assistance. His death would result in improvements of conditions for the remaining four pilots. 
a truly tragic part of this war, and to add to this, I would like to read a short piece written by one of the pilots who survived the captivity and became a Christian missionary in Japan after the war. Titled, I Was a Prisoner of Japan, by Jacob DeShazer. I was a prisoner of war for 40 long months, 34 of them in solitary confinement. When I flew as a member of a bombing squadron on a raid over enemy territory on April 18, 1942, my heart was filled with bitter hatred for the people of that nation. When our plane ran out of petrol and the members of the crew of my plane had to parachute down into an enemy-held territory and they were captured by the enemy, the bitterness of my heart against my captors seemed more than I could bear. Taken to prison with the survivors of another of our planes, we were imprisoned and beaten, half-starved, terribly tortured, and denied by solitary confinement even the comfort of association with one another. Three of my buddies were executed by a firing squad about six months after our capture, and 14 months later, another one of them died of slow starvation. My hatred for the enemy nearly drove me crazy. It was soon after the later's death that I began to ponder the cause of such hatred between members of the human race. I wondered what it was that made one people hate another people, and what made me hate them. My thoughts turned towards what I heard about Christianity, changing hatred between human beings into real brotherly love, and I was gripped with a strange longing to examine the Christian's Bible to see if I could find the secret. I begged my captors to get a Bible for me. At last, in the month of May 1944, a guard brought me the book, but told me I could only have it for three weeks. I eagerly began to read its pages. Chapter after chapter gripped my heart. In due time, I came to the books of the prophets and found that their every writing seemed focused on a divine redeemer from sin, one who was to be sent from heaven to be born in the form of a human babe. The writings so fascinated me that I read them again and again, until I had earnestly studied them through six times. Then I went on into the New Testament, and there read of the birth of Jesus Christ, the one who actually fulfilled the very prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micaiah, and the other Old Testament writers. My heart rejoiced as I found confirmed in Acts 10.43, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whatsoever believeth, on him shall receive remission of sins. After I carefully read the book of the Acts, I continued on into the study of the Apostle Paul, wrote to the Christians at Rome. On June the 8th of 1944, the words in Romans 10.9 stood out boldly before my eyes. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, I shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. That very moment God gave me the grace to confess my sins to him, and he forgave me all my sins and saved me for Jesus' sake. I later found that his word again promises this so clearly in John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful, and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How my heart rejoiced in my newness of spiritual life, even though my body was suffering so terribly from the physical beatings and lack of food. But suddenly I discovered that God had given me a new spiritual eyes, and that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. 
I realized that these people did not know anything about my Savior, and that if Christ is not in a heart, it is natural to be cruel. I read in my Bible that while those who crucified Jesus had beaten him and spit upon him before he was nailed to the cross, on the cross he tenderly prayed in his moment of excruciating suffering, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. And now from the depths of my heart, I too pray for God to forgive my torturers, and I determined by the aid of Christ to do my best to acquaint these people with the message of salvation that they might become as other believing Christians. With his love controlling my heart, the 13th chapter of the 1st Corinthians took on a living meaning. Love suffereth long, and is kind. Love inneth not. Love thanketh not itself. It is not puffed up, doth not behave it unseemly. Seeketh not her own, it is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, love never faileth. A year passed by, and during that year the memories of the weeks I had been permitted to spend with my Bible group sweeter and sweeter day by day. Then one day as I was sitting in my solitary confinement cell, I became very sick. My heart was paining me, even as my fellow prisoner had told me his was paining him just before he died of starvation. I slid down onto my knees and I began to pray. The guards rushed in and began to punish me, but I kept right on praying. Finally, they let me alone. God, in that hour, revealed unto me how to endure suffering. At last, freedom came. On August the 20th of 1945, parachutists dropped onto the prison grounds and released us from our cells. We were flown back to our country and placed in hospitals where we slowly regained our physical strength. I have completed my training in a Christian college, God having clearly commanded me, Go teach those people who held you prisoner the way of salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And I'm now back in the land as a missionary, with one single purpose, to make Christ known. I am sending this testimony to people everywhere, with the earnest prayer that a great host of people may confess Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. To be very blunt, the only reason I added this rather lengthy passage from this individual is, as somebody who's an atheist, uh, I find it interesting that in such brutal circumstances where... Many of him and his colleagues should have died like uh, his one colleague did, uh, starving. Because, to be honest, in the last two years of the war for the Japanese home islands, like they were starving horrendously. For prisoners of war, they were at the very bottom of the totem pole, as we say. So they were getting barely any food, and what they were getting wasn't nutritious. Thus, a lot of them were dying to things like beriberi. But as I've seen in countless primary sources from events and wars across human history, people find solace in religion sometimes and it gives them the strength to carry on. And for this individual, quite unique, he went back to Japan and he uh, carried on what he thought was his mission. thought it was a pretty interesting part of the Doolittle Red story. Now alongside the unfortunate news for the Americans on May the 14th, a major tragedy also occurred for the Australians. At 4.10 a.m. on the 14th, the Australian hospital ship Centaur was on a run from Sydney to Port Moresby when she was torpedoed by a Japanese submarine. The torpedo struck her portside oil fuel tank below the waterline, creating a 10-meter hole, igniting fuel and setting the ship ablaze. The ship was luckily not carrying patients, but held her normal crew staff of around 332 personnel on board. 
Many of those on board were killed instantly from the concussion of the blast, others from the blazing inferno. The Centaur quickly took on water from a breach, rolled to port and sank bow first, submerging within just three minutes. Her rapid sinking prevented the deployment of the lifeboats, though two would break off as she went down. According to the Centaur's second officer, Gordon Rippon, she was hit 44 kilometers northeast of Point Lookout. Of the 332 people on board, only 64 would survive. Most of the crew had been asleep when she was hit, giving barely any chance for them to react. It is estimated that 200 people may have been alive inside the center as she sank. Several who had escaped the ship would die of shrapnel wounds or drown having found nothing to support them in the water. The survivors spent 36 hours in the water clinging to barrels, wreckage, and two damaged lifeboats. The survivors drifted around 36 kilometers in the water going further northeast. On the morning of May the 15th, the destroyer USS Mugford departed Brisbane. Escorted by the New Zealand freighter Sussex when she saw some of the shipwrecked survivors. Sailors aboard the Mugford took up positions with rifles fending off sharks from the survivors. It took an hour and 20 minutes to rescue all 64 people. One of the survivors was Sister Ellen Savage, the only surviving nurse from 12 aboard the Centaur. In 1944, Ellen Savage was presented the George Medal for providing medical care, boosting morale, and displaying courage during the time they waited for rescue. The identity of the attacker was suspected to be a Japanese submarine. At the time of the attack, three KD-7 Kadai-class submarines were operating off Australia's eastern coast. The I-177, commanded by Hajime Nakagawa, the I-178, commanded by Hidejiro Utsuyuki, and the I-180, commanded by Toshio Kuzaka. None of these submarines survived the Pacific War. The I-177 was sunk by the USS Samuel S. Miles on October the 3rd of 1944. The I-178 was sunk by the USS Patterson on August the 25th of 1943. And the I-180 was sunk by the USS Gilmore on April the 26th of 1944. In December of 1943, following protests, the Japanese government issued an official statement denying any responsibility for sinking of the Centaur. The sinking of a hospital ship was a war crime, and investigations were conducted between 1944 to 1948. A conclusion in the investigation suspected the I-177 of Nakagawa to be the most likely culprit, but there is not nearly strong enough evidence. Thus, the case was closed on December the 14th of 1948. Nakagawa survived the war, and until his death in 1991, he refused to speak about the suspected attack on the centaur. I would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Please go subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at the Age of Conquest, the Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And if after all that, you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, the Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I've just released my historic film review of Grave of the Fireflies, a real tearjerker. And just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And over there, you can find exclusive podcasts like my comparison of the fentanyl crisis in North America today and the opium wars in the 19th century, my episode on General Ishiwara Kanji, and my interview with Chuck Myers. Check it out, it means a lot to me. 
The Australian and American forces in New Guinea were fighting tooth and nail towards their ultimate goal of Salamaua, trying to deceive the Japanese the whole while. Soon battles for Lei and Salamaua would be fought to rid New Guinea of the Japanese menace.